0: Right. So, my name's Kat, and I have the privilege of uh, helping us go through the reading this morning, which, as you can see, is Mark chapter ten, uh, continuing on that chapter from last week, um, starting at verse thirty-two. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Hey, good morning, everybody!
1: Great to see the ch- hear the chatter. Hey, um, nothing is quite so annoying as when you go somewhere to see something great, and uh, your view is obstructed. Right? Go to the the football, or your sporting code, and you see the person's head right there. Um, me and Natasha went to the symphony orchestra, and there, it was a it was a silent orchestra. Not that the orchestra was silent, but you. You couldn't talk, and it was meant to be reflective, and and then we sat next to the two people that just chatted the whole time through the thing. It's sound, so you can't... Anyway, Or what about someone too close to the TV, and they come in and move your head and get out my way, or when there's this, a big dead pixel on the screen behind you. How annoying, when you can't see the greatness around you because it's obstructed. But hey, in our reading today, Mark, who's a gospel account of Jesus we're looking at, he paints three portraits of us, for us, of Jesus and how great Jesus is, so that we can shift the things in our life around by the grace of God that stop or block or get in the way of seeing Jesus clearly and his own greatness. So, Mike tells us three things, three portraits, and we'll look at them. And they're on the outline, but he says Jesus is the suffering Son of Man, Jesus is the servant who gives his life. And Jesus is the compassionate king. Suffering son of man, servant who gives his life, and the compassionate king. Is that how you see Jesus? And I hope today that all of us would walk away with just a little bit more clarity on who Jesus is so that nothing will get in our way of his greatness in our life. So let me just pray to that end. Father God, you are the truly great one, and we, we love We want to honour you with our lives. So please help us to see Jesus clearly through your word today that will change us as we look to you day by day through your spirit and by your grace. Amen. So Jesus is, the first portrait we see is the suffering son of man from 32 to 34. Now this is the third time in Mark's account that Jesus has explained to the 12 and those following him what we will call a passion prediction. Uh, Passion prediction simply means it's the time at Easter, but not yet. And Jesus outlines the details of when and how and who and what will happen when he will die. That's what he does. But he's doing it before he dies, showing how his life and death fit into God's big redemptive plan and purpose for the world, which God has been working since Genesis, but also especially since the time of Abraham, And in Jesus, what we're seeing is this wonderful swap or exchange is going to take place. If we trust Jesus, he takes away our sin and judgment, giving us his own righteousness. And these predictions explain how this swap happens. And in this one, the third one, Two really big Old Testament point of references come into view so we can uh, see the portrait Mark wants us to see of Jesus. Firstly, Jesus says, and and Stephen did a great job with the all ages, the Hi, I'm Luke, son of Martin, but there's a few more of them in this passage, not just Bartimaeus. But Jesus says he's the son of man. Now that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Listen to the description of this son of man and see how uh, beautiful, radiant, exalted he is. Daniel 7 verse 13, it says, "There Then came one like a son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is no earthly king being described here. This is God's new king and Jesus says, He is that son of man. Which, which, this glorious and beautifulness and, and splendour of the Son of Man in Daniel sits in stark contrast to Jesus' next description of himself because he says the Son of Man will be mocked and spit upon and killed and then rise from the dead. And, and he's referring to Isaiah here. Chapter 52 and 53 of what we call a servant song in the book of Isaiah. One of the verses says his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of a human and his form marred beyond human likeness. That's the suffering son of man in Isaiah. And this suffering servant in Isaiah brings about a new kind of exodus from God's people, like happened in Egypt many years ago, but this time it's much bigger, happening through the death and resurrection of someone rescuing them from sin. You know, at the start of every school year, if you have kids or as a parent of grandkids, you would remember writing The kid's name on every piece of clothing and and item, and maybe putting stickers everywhere or ironing labels so that you know whose uh, um, t-shirt and pencil it is, right? Uh, And then when you find something, the first thing you do is you look at the name tag and go, oh, this belongs to Luke, I better give it to him or Jimmy or whoever it is. Now Jesus here, with these two Old Testament references, is writing his name on both of these big pictures saying that Daniel seven kingdom will come about through the Isaiah death and resurrection. See, until Jesus, no one quite knew that the servant and the son of man is one and the same. Both titles belong to him alone. You look at them, the name Jesus is written there. It belongs to him. Is that portrait of Jesus, the eternal, exalted, suffering one, is that how you see him? Does that description permeate our life as a gathering? But unfortunately, even when the name is clearly written, as my kids have taught me many times, they come home from school with something that is not theirs. And you think, the name says John, and your name is not John. And so the disciples, in this moment, have misunderstood exactly what Jesus is on about, which is why Mark gives us another portrait, fleshing it out more, mark ten thirty five to forty five Jesus is the servant who gives his life. interesting, just having heard about the suffering of Jesus uh, and his persecution and death, James and John, two brothers, walk up to Jesus and they grab hold of this future glory. Do you know let let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. How does death equate to glory what What, what did they see in that when Jesus described it? Well, well, Jewish rabbis had long debated who would sit in the most glorious place of honour in the Kingdom of God. Some of them said, if you were righteous and just, you would have a good place. Other Jewish teachers said, if you knew the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, if you knew that and, and you had good deeds, you would get a really good seat. But most of them agreed that if you were a martyr, if you were killed for your faith, you would have the highest place of honour in the Kingdom of God. And so for these disciples growing up in that culture to hear Jesus talk about dying it set their minds racing to what being great is all about. Now previously in Mark 9, a similar conversation happened, so they probably should have remembered that to clue them in. But they've missed again the key idea. For Jesus, the truly great one, the higher you go, you know, Daniel 7, the higher your position, the more you serve. Do you know that um, Prime Minister means first server. That's why we call them the prime minister. The first Minister means servant. The first server we have is the prime minister. Make with it what you will, but that's the concept. The higher your position in theory, the more you should serve. Okay? Now for Jesus, a truly great one, he doesn't just give himself the titles we've seen in the last few weeks, like generous one, teacher, healer, everlasting God. Not, not even this, the, king, uh, the exalted king of Daniel 7. He's more than that. Jesus here then says, I am a servant... Or even the word slave comes out as well. Because greatness in the kingdom of God is down, not up. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Can you drink the cup I drink? I'll be baptized with the baptism I am going to be baptized with. And they naively say, we can, we can. Jesus has foretold his death and how it will happen. And he wants them to know this is something God has been doing and had in the works for a very, very long time. And the first image here is, is, talks about a cup. The cup goes back to another Old Testament picture of Jeremiah 25. And it's a way of describing God's anger at those who despise him, abuse his people and his creation. God is not idly sitting back, closing his eyes, putting his fingers in the ears, to the drama of a broken, failed, hostile world. God's anger at injustice is measured and it's just and it's filling up like a cup of water until it then overflows. I recall uh, once, or more than once actually, embarrassingly, uh, I filled the sink up at home, and I would get distracted by the kids, and I'd walk away, and then I would come back. And the sink would have overflowed all onto the kitchen floor, and water has gone everywhere. It reached a point, and the kitchen is now feeling the effects of my poor decision-making skills. And then I had to clean it up. So too, this is the picture of God's wrath, but without the forgetting. Yeah, it's not a perfect analogy. Jesus will take the cup of God's anger that's been filling up for centuries, and rather than letting it make a mess all over God's people, he'll drink it. Full at the top, leaving no dregs in the bottom, completely drunk, down. He will take the wrath and anger of God onto and in himself so that we do not have to taste it. And just like those newer sinks that we have in our bathroom that has the hole at the back so that if you do leave the plug in and it goes up and then it escapes so it doesn't make the meth, you've seen them and wondered what it is. So too, Jesus is the safe one directing God's anger through that little hole which is his life, protecting us from God's wrath by drinking it down. Which leads to the second point, the cup, which is the second image of baptism. Jesus will wade out into death having it swallow him up like water washing over as the Son of Man can only do that to then bob back up so to speak into life can you do that jesus says well not in the same way but they will follow because part of mark's emphasis on writing his gospel is to show that jesus is the suffering servant who calls us to suffer as we follow him now when the 10 other disciples find out what james and john have asked they're annoyed at this They're not annoyed that they asked. They're annoyed that they didn't ask first, you see. Just as Jesus was indignant for the disciples stopping kids coming, they feel indignation that they didn't come earlier. Oh, I should have gone earlier. You beat me to it, you know. That's what the other ten think. And Jesus turns to the twelve, and it looks like a scene from The Hunger Games, if you know the books. This is a series of books and movies set in a dystopian world 13 poor districts, and I've given away something you've never seen it, poor districts surround this wealthy capital and once upon a time everyone rebelled from the capital. But now as a punishment and a reminder of that, once a year, every district has to offer two boys and girls as what they call tribute, chosen by lot to compete in a fight to the death called the Hunger Games, right? It's a live streamed event that you can't escape from until everyone else has been killed and you're the last person standing. And as the story goes in here, Katniss, who's the main protagonist, her younger sister is chosen by lot for this particular game, and that that means she's going to die. And so just as she's about to be let off, Katniss stands up and boldly says, I volunteer as tribute. She takes her sister's place, driven by love to save her, serving in her place, facing certain death. And so too, Jesus here clarifies to his followers saying, I'm volunteering to take your place to go to death for you. You see, as the Daniel 7 ruler, he's not here to lord over us, but to be a servant of us, because greatness in the kingdom of God is one who serves. And Jesus is the greatest because he serves by giving us his life. This is something they've never heard or seen of before, you see. This is a whole new category. The measure of love for someone now is not love for me or them but jesus's love for them so he explains it he says you know those who are regarded as rulers of the gentiles lord are over them high officials exercising authority not so with you instead whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant whoever wants to be first must be slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many No one has ever loved the way Jesus has. The ultimate, highest, most glorious, faithful person in all history serves others by giving up his life. Not for one person, like Cadmus did for a sister, but for many. And not for a friend, or a family member, or, or lovers, but Jesus gave him his life for the guilty, sinful, disobedient humans. He's the tribute before God giving his valuable life in exchange for our life. There's a saying that says something's only as worth as much as someone's willing to pay for it. Imagine Jesus is at an auction for you and the price goes up and up and then it hits the millions and it keeps going up and hits the tens of millions and the hundreds of millions and eventually Jesus just says, oh stop, I'll give my life. The highest price you can and get is the eternal everlasting God suffering and dying for the lives of his people. And that's where greatness is found. By looking to the truly great one who would do this. Which is why then Jesus then talks of not just about his serving but ours. Our community of followers of Jesus adopts this outlook, his outlook. A view that values the other person above ourselves. You see, Christians are invited to bring the love and the hope and the compassion of Jesus to those around them, and we do that from a position of service. Do you know that one way the Bible describes a Christian, and there's many ways, but one way is a servant of God. Mary calls herself that in, in Luke 1. I'm a servant of God. And, and Paul describes the Thessalonian believers as servants of God. It will be quite theologically correct to say to yourself, and this week, look in the mirror, I am a servant of, or even a slave, of God. We serve, not for greatness, but because we love Jesus, the truly great one. We serve a world which desperately needs to see there is a loving God who wants to save and restore people. And we serve the church, helping more and more people know this Jesus, more and more in community. Of course, even saying this, we are reminded that we are more like James and John than we care to imagine at times, We make God all about ourselves. While the community of God's people, even here, we don't always operate out of love for God. We might feel indignation at others like the disciples did. We might comment and say things like, never out loud, we're too polite, but inside you'll say this, where is everyone? No one notices what I do. If I wasn't here, church would fall apart you see, Jesus offers a corrective to his followers here. If the beautiful everlasting king is also your servant, what does that say about your motivation? There's a great chapter in the Bible in the New Testament on love. It's 1 Corinthians 13. And it starts by listing three ways you can serve that are good, but if you do them without love, you're nothing more than a noisy, disruptive symbol. Now, that's a really horrible way to be described, isn't it? You are as useful as a cymbal clashing out of time on a drum kit if you serve without loving God. But let me push that more at how serious this is. Imagine a recorder concert full of receptions who have only started playing that morning that goes for 45 minutes without a break and repeats the same song that painful cacophony is more enjoyable to listen to and achieves a better outcome than serving Jesus and his people without love for God as your motivation. The time signature for service is always love the beat. Is always to think over Jesus, and the song is always a humble tune. And when you think over that portrait of the one who gives his life, may that breed nothing but humility in us. That is the only response. May the bar be set high, yes, but let's serve by going low. And let's remember the last portrait, because living this way is actually really joyful. Notice that Jesus is the compassionate king. So, what's happening in this passage? They're walking towards Jerusalem. Jesus is slowly getting there to where he will die. And they come to Jericho. Now Jericho is that famous city in the Old Testament. It's the prototype of how God's people are to enter the land that he promised them. That whole situation, Jericho, is how it should have been. And just as God's people showed mercy to Rahab and her family in that time, Jesus, the good king, comes into the city to show mercy to a blind man called Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is the picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. Upon hearing Jesus, he shouts, but the crowds tell him to be quiet. But as Michael helpfully pointed out, this disregarded blind man has better vision than the rest, because he keeps saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I suspect Michael stole my notes, because I was going to put the question, well, why does Jesus say Son of David when his earthly father was Joseph? He's not confused, Bartimaeus. David is the prototype good king who has a heart after God's own heart. David's son was to sit and rule with justice and mercy forever. Jesus is not only the, get the picture, the eternal, powerful servant king, but a king full of compassion and kindness. So he calls to Bartimaeus. Call him, come over to me. And then it says, he jumped up and he left his cloak and he, on the side of the road and he ran to Jesus. Just because Jesus flips greatness upside down and power and status goes the wrong way. Never for a second think Jesus is not interested in a joyful life. When Mary calls herself a slave or a servant of God, she could not be happier to spend her life in the service of the one who would love her and save her. The Thessalonian church could not be happier in complete poverty to give all they could in the service of their God to make his name known more. That's the reputation the Thessalonians get. Happy but poor. Neither can Bartimaeus. And the same should be true of every follower of Jesus here. Awe and wonder should permeate our life, knowing the magnitude of Jesus' service to us. I wonder, is your faith categorized by those around you as joyful? Are you a joyful Christian? Mark is painting a portrait. You have every reason to be when you realize who saved you and the mercy you've seen. And then you notice a link. Jesus asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Just as he asked James and John. And I always thought, silly question. Yeah, yeah. Guy come, You're a mechanic. Guy walks in, my car's broken. The mechanic says, what do you want me to do for you? Like, well, can I have coffee? Yeah, what's Jesus doing? But no, no, it's the wrong question you have to realise what's happening. If the disciples can ask for something like glory without serving and they see Jesus and Bartimaeus is blind, what will he ask for? If we haven't looked at the answer, just follow the throw, you think, wait a minute, this could go really wonky. The disciples want power and prestige and to be seen and noticed next to Jesus, right? Whereas Bartimaeus just wants to see. Rabbi, I want to see, he says. And the son of David serves him by giving him sight, so that Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus can follow Jesus, the suffering, compassionate servant, along the road of life. You see, he left everything behind because he found way more than eyesight in Jesus. He found true greatness. He found a life worth living in Jesus, and was willing to leave that life behind to see Jesus clearly. And as we leave Bartimaeus to wander off in the distance, following Jesus joyfully, we are left ourselves to ponder, what do you see this morning when you look at Jesus? Please don't make the same mistake the disciples did and misunderstand what Jesus is about. If Jesus was to ask you today, what do you want me to do for you? How would you respond? Let me put to you that these three portraits of Mark, the suffering son of man, the servant who gives his life, the compassionate king, may that frame your response. To see Jesus this way is to have clarity on true greatness and what it looks like. And I hope that these few moments and few verses have been a reminder for you to go into your week, to go into your family, to go into your job, to see Jesus clearly. But remember too, as a church, and I hope, we just don't want to see Jesus clearly ourselves. We want others to as well. And I hope that you'll also go into your week pondering and thinking, how can I help someone else meet Jesus, as our slogan goes, or help someone else see him clearly? Because that's really what we need, the right view of Jesus. So over coffee today, and we haven't done this for a while, but from time to time we put over coffee questions, and I I hope you would chat with these and think through them. But what will you do this week to see Jesus clearly? Just think about it. For the joy of knowing, how will you see him clearer, sharper, this week, and, and secondly, how how has these verses challenged your understanding of what serving Jesus looks like? And remember that recorder concert too. And do remember, it's ridiculously joyful to know the Son of God, Son of Man, Suffering Servant, Glorious Eternal, Everlasting One. Let's pray, and then Shannon will lead us through prayer as well together. Our great God, it is a joy to to ponder and think upon you and to know you personally. You have come so that we can have sight to see you clearly. And one day, Jesus, we will gaze upon your beauty in a renewed creation. And until that day, may we serve and love you for the joy that you are and that you bring to our lives because you are the wonderful eternal God who served us in your life, death, and resurrection. Amen. Thank you, Shannon.